everyone. Well, um, tonight or this afternoon, I wanted to speak to the group um, about something which is actually uh, quite central in bringing about health and happiness in a person's life and also in success in, in, uh, in a business world. And, you know, when I look at the kind of consequences of what happens when we develop this, it brings about... Uh, for oneself personally, a sense of emotional and mental stability and uh, confidence, um, sense of satisfaction and, and ability to be uh, happy and healthy. Uh, one becomes more able to make clear decisions and act and, and respond in a skillful way. It is something which is essential in fostering harmonious relationships and bringing about care for the people that one has interactions with and brings about a, a context where there's a sense of support and empowerment that happens in a team uh, as well as a respectful relating that goes on. And then when it turns, in, in speaking in terms of business uh, values, one of the things that comes from this is a is a culture that is that creates a sense of empowerment, of gratitude, of respect, which then creates the ability to attract people who are interested in living in an environment like that, and clients who are interested in valuing um, that kind of attitude. What this does is it tends to create an atmosphere where shared goals that will be of the most benefit are the ones that are arrived at. And um, the team feels a sense of cohesiveness and a sense of empowerment. And the, the clients that, and the customers that one has has a real sense of care. And what comes forward from people on a team is the ability to continue to innovate in the various different kinds of levels that one is working on. And as a result of the continuous innovation, the healthy climate, the empowerment of, this, of the community, of the, of the team, then what happens is that there's naturally higher profits in, in, on the partnership and with all of the stakeholders. So question is, is any of this of interest? <laughs> you know, and are there other things that you value more that are more interest? And, you know, what actually supports this? You know, what's the basis of this? You know, where, how do we get there? What's this all about? So what I wanted to talk about today, well, let me just tell you a couple of stories. And then I'll come back into the material and then we can do some exercises. You get to tell a dad story. I don't get to tell dad stories too often. I get to tell one today. Um, I can't remember the actual situation, what he was trying to negotiate. But he was trying to negotiate something and it was stuck because the person he needed to talk to was a lawyer who was totally disconnected and frozen off from the ideas that he had. So he couldn't get through. And he realized that in order for him to be able to um, make any kind of impact, he was going to have to reach this guy. And, you know, he was frozen. There was nothing moving. So dad did a total dad thing. He got himself, um, he went to the, uh, to the pharmacy, and he got himself huge bandages and a, and a, and a triangular bandage and then went and got some food coloring. So he put the red food coloring on so it looked like it was food coloring. It didn't look like it was blood. And he put the bandages around his head and taped it on top of his clothing. And he had the triangular bandage on so that the whole thing, it looked like a costume. And he went in and he said, 
He said, Joe, you're killing me, Joe! Joe, you're killing me! And just the, the, the way he looked, which was ridiculous, mm-hmm. and the, the presentation, which was a kind of mock-up, the two of them were just roaring with laughter. And the laughter created a context where they were able to bond, and the bonding meant that he could actually hear what he had to say. Okay? Let me tell you another story. Who was it? I think it might have been, it's either Peter Levine or Marshall Rosenberg who were working with conflicts in war-torn places. And one of the things that they were doing in order to um, build bridges was they would take the moms of the opposing sides with their babies, and these babies were like less than a year old. And they'd have all the moms surrounding one of those parachutes, and they'd put a baby in the parachute and they'd roll the baby in the parachute and I don't know if you've ever done this with a baby but babies in those parachutes they don't just feel happy they become totally ecstatic okay and because moms are like wired up to be tuned to babies the moms get completely blissed out having their babies get so happy and because the moms are moms from both sides of the war They are bonded together in this feeling of incredible sense of joy in feeling the joy of the baby being so happy. And then they share it around with all the babies. And then the bonded moms go back home and find ways of bridging with the men in the family so that the war then has a way of communicating between them. Okay? One more story, and then I'll go on to some more of the material here. Peter Guber, in the book Tell It to Win, was talking about um, trying to have uh, get funding for a documentary on gorillas. And um, for some reason, gorillas was a real passion for him, and he felt that, you know, if he could get this documentary made, it would be a good thing for the gorillas, it would be a good thing for the people, it would be a good thing for him. It was, he was really had a lot of interest in it. And because of the funding and because in that uh, time period there had been a couple of movies that had, had been financial disasters, there wasn't a real easy way for, you know, he, 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 he had to really make a good case. So he was speaking to the person he needed to talk to. And he could see um, there was no buy-in. He wasn't interested. And... As the next person was walking in the door, so this is in a business office, he needs to make a presentation, he gets on the floor and he starts writhing. And whoever he was talking to says, what are you doing? What is going on? And he inhabited the emotional space of being a gorilla and said, you know, I'm a gorilla and I am wounded and I need your help. And if you fund this movie, it is going to help me. And so having inhabited the space of what it was that he was actually trying to present, he made a connection, and as a result of the connection, the funding came through, the movie happened, it was a financial success, and the support came through, which actually had the effect that he had hoped for. Yeah. So what we're talking about on one level is emotional intelligence, and another level of it is... Um, kind of an authenticity with what's happening in ourselves, a willingness to risk, 
and a willingness to be open and vulnerable in situations that are most of the time where we think we're not supposed to be. Okay? And as we understand the combination of these things, emotional intelligence, authenticity, and the willingness to be open and vulnerable in context where we don't necessarily think we should be, that creates a context where all of the benefits that I was talking about are possible to come forward. And so the question then is, is, is that is this useful and is this of interest and is it willing to put some time and energy into learning how to bring about the skills to do this? You know, is it worth your time? So when we're looking at emotional intelligence, the five categories that Daniel Goleman kind of laid out, he was the one who, who sort of made this a popular term, was the, the areas of self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. Now, meditation is fabulous at self-awareness and self-regulation and understanding one's motivation and empathy, okay? And those four things then give the context for developing social skills. When we look at self-awareness, what we are wanting to know is what's actually happening in our own bodies and minds. We need to know what's going on. And the self-awareness needs to take place within a framework where we're not judging what we're experiencing. There has to be permission to feel what's actually going on without it being censored or without there being an opinion about it. And when I leave this class, I go across town to another class, and the class tonight, this time, is going to be talking about the foundation of watching the mind and watching the objects of the mind. And the whole principle of this is, is, is that we can observe what is going on in our own minds and suspend judgment or opinion about it. There are times for interacting with it, but before we interact with it, we have to know what it is that we're feeling. And we have to know what it is we're feeling without having a judgment or opinion about what it is. Because sometimes those judgments, then what they do is they create a suppression and, are, and disable our ability to know what we're feeling. Because it disallows some things that we don't think it's okay to feel them. Right? We've got to be able to know what we're feeling. And then from that, we have to know how we feel about how we're feeling and learn how to respond in a way which allows a healthy and open and skillful response and moves away from the habit patterns which are not healthy, which have anger or aggression or fear as their basis, and opens more towards something which is kind and wise and skillful and takes the, uh, the best interests of, of everybody at heart. Self-awareness then moves into self-regulation in the sense that it's not okay to lose our temper, it's not okay to kick people in the shins, it's not okay to throw glass or water, you know, even if we get fed up and frustrated or somebody says something that's not nice. We need to learn how to navigate the kind of heat that arises or somebody comes and spends five minutes and tells you everything wrong that you've done in the last five years, you know, and, you know, just how to hold the kinds of difficulties that we experience and not have them cause either collapse or explosion. 
to self-regulate means that we know how to be present with our reactions to things, to allow them, and to shift our attention in such a way where we can bring about a sense of calm and ease when the circumstance would be highly activating, highly triggering. Motivation is to be really clear about what our core values are and to come back to them again and again and again and to know what your bottom line is, to know where you're going to compromise and where you absolutely, under no circumstances, will you compromise. Because when you're clear about what your motivation is, it can give you a real solid spine to handle situations when the heat is on. And certainly all of us have situations where the heat's on and we've got to make tough choices and to know what we're willing to negotiate and what is absolutely not negotiable is this kind of stuff that helps it make us clear to, to do all of that. Empathy is the ability to sit in somebody else's shoes. It's the actually ability to feel it from inside the skin of another person's position. You know, if you walk a mile in another person's moccasins, sometimes things look a little bit different. It doesn't mean that you need to throw out your values or throw out the, the needs of the company, but it means that you can hold those needs in mind and still be relating to the person that you're speaking to in a way that is compassionate. And then the social skills that come from holding all these together is the leadership skills, the communication skills, the negotiation skills, the conflict resolution skills, the team building skills that emerge as a response to all of these other aspects. And the greater our capacity with all of these, then it's my sense is that that's the place where um, the greatest sense of health and happiness and fulfillment in our life comes. And, you know, check it out. Is that your sense? I mean, I know people who have been really brilliant but haven't had good emotional intelligence and haven't had a lot of fulfillment in their lives. Or people who've had a lot of wealth but they haven't had a lot of emotional intelligence and have a lot of suffering, you know. And so it seems to me um, that emotional intelligence is the thing that is the, is the, is the tiebreaker. That's the thing that really determines uh, a lot of whether our lives are going to be happy and fulfilled, our family lives are going to be nourishing, our professional lives are going to have a feeling of core values that we really long for that's going to move in the direction that is something that's going to be... Uh, what we really want to be doing. And it's an interesting question, you know, when we look at what's actually going to change the world, you know, I, I don't know that, the, that what we vote on is going to change the world, you know. I think what is going to change the world is when people in ones and twos and fours and fives are working together in a way where there's authenticity, where there is care, where there's respect, where there is core values that are being upheld, where there's a sense of uh, empowerment that's going on. I have much more confidence in that than I do in policy. And I have a feeling that the more there are people who really ascribe to living that way, the more the policy will then begin to reflect it. 
So what I'd like to do um, for the next is do a bunch of different um, kind of exercises that bring out components of these uh, practices to get some practice in actually developing them. See how it goes, okay? Okay, so this first practice is what I'd like is to ask people to start with a little bit of um, sitting meditation. Where sometimes when you're sitting in meditation, it's just helpful to sit in a way where your spine is upright. And the instruction for this meditation is to just want people to come in contact with their body in a very strong way. So feel yourself sitting in the chair. Feel your feet on the ground. Feel your seat on the chair. And just uh, let your body relax. So if you notice that there's any places that are tight or tense, just take a moment to relax. And sometimes the breath can be a really helpful anchoring place that we return to again, that we can feel our breath, we can let our breath energize, we can let our breath relax. So the breath and the body posture can be an anchor point that we can return to again and again. And when there's a tension that's connected to the body and there's some measure of collectedness, then we can just gently ask the question, well, what's actually going on right now? You know, are there thoughts or moods or feelings? Do I feel energized or tired? Am I anxious about something? And we don't need to know all the details about what we're anxious about. We can just get a sense that there's, there's something there. Or it can be quite peaceful or quite spacious or quite dull. So the idea with this is not to have it be any particular way, but just to begin to tune in to what is there, what's present. What are the qualities of the energy in your body? Are they agitated? Are they calm? Are they restless? What's the quality of the mind? What's the mood of the mind? So there's a, just a general checking in to how things are. And what is needed is an awareness that is not judging. It's not demanding things to be different. It's open and accepting. We can notice that the way things are is constantly changing. And that is also what we can be aware of and notice without asking it to be different. And sometimes when the lovely things change, there's some sadness. And when the things which are difficult change, then there's some gladness. And we can just notice that change is happening. And then coming back to the body, sitting here. And if there's not a whole lot going on in terms of mood or thought or energy levels that are outside of what feels common or familiar, then we can just return to the feeling of the body sitting in the chair, the breath coming in and out. So the breath and the body are the kind of the ground points the returning points, the anchoring points. 
for attention to come back to again and again. And then if there's another thought or there's another bubble of a memory or there's another feeling of anxiety or restlessness that comes up, then as that comes into awareness, then we know it. We receive it in awareness. We stay with it. And then when it begins to recede, our attention can come back to the breath and to the body. And if your mind starts spacing out or getting uh, distracted, all that's needed is just a gentle reminder to come back to the breath and the body. You don't need to have an opinion about that. You don't need to have a judgment about that. As soon as we remember that our task is just to be with the body and the breath, then that's where we bring our attention. And so again and again, we might need to remind ourselves many times and in a, in a few minutes or in, a, in a, a longer period of time that that's what we're doing. Just being present with what is. And now I'd like to invite everybody to stand. And again, standing is another posture that we can develop, and sometimes it's just helpful just to spend a little bit of time to set it up so that we're standing in a way that feels balanced. So just see if your feet are parallel and about hips width apart, and your knees are relaxed. And just again, let your spine elongate, and let the weight of your body just settle into the floor. And if anybody has any kind of issues with um, standing, then please feel welcome to sit whenever you need. So don't feel that you have to overextend yourself. And so now again, as the same meditation instruction, only this time what I'd like to ask is, is in addition to being aware of what's happening, just tune into how we feel about what's happening. So if there's a thought or a feeling of comes up, there's some anxiety associated with it, just notice if there's a tightening around that or a welcoming of that. And if there's a tightening, then we bring our attention to our reaction. And just see if in bringing attention to the reaction, it can soften a little. And then when the reaction settles, we come back to the primary feeling. And then when that settles, we come back to the body standing. And it can be that it's actually quite subtle. You know, it can be that there's just this tiny little thread of nervousness. It's not a big, huge thing. It's just a tiny little thing. Normally, we don't want to bring any attention to that. Normally, we deflect our attention away from the nervousness, and we think about all the things that we need to do. But if we bring attention right there to that little subtle thing, and then just see what it feels like to bring attention there, and then to notice if there's any reaction to that. If we wish it weren't there, if we kind of want to disappear, if we'd like to get busy or do all the productive things that we've got to do. Or there might be a lovely positive feeling, a 
the memory of the successful negotiation that happened today and, and then the wanting it to stay, wanting the feelings to stay, wanting to, to secure that sense of competence and confidence. So there's also a wanting, a reaction. And we can open gently to the wanting and seeing if there can be some spaciousness that comes. And it might be that for many people here, just being quiet for this amount of time is just incredibly unfamiliar. And so there just might be this unfamiliar sense or this kind of strange feeling of just being so quiet. And that's what's arising. And we can bring attention to this feeling that's present and how we're reacting to it. And seeing if in opening there's a softening and a relaxing. And as things settle and relax, we come back again and feel the body. Just the sensations of the feet on the floor and the legs. Just the sensation of being upright the weight. We don't need to figure things out or get anything sorted out. We don't need to have any conversations about what's going to happen. They can just be present with what's going on. Okay. And now I'd like you to take a few minutes, maybe five minutes, and just very Quietly and softly, I'd like you to go and walk around the building a little bit and keep the same contemplation going where we're using the body as the touchstone, the contact of walking as the touchstone. And any time a feeling or a, an emotion emerges, we bring attention to that, then how we are reacting to that, and then coming back to the physical experience of walking walking slowly. And when you hear me ring the bell, then just come back in here and return to our seats. So about five minutes. Okay? Go ahead. So um, this is now a time for working in pairs. So find somebody in this group that you'd like to partner up with. And uh, once you partner up, stand together. And uh, Or if you want to sit together, you're welcome to. You just need to change the chair so that you're facing each other. And, uh, and then just listen for more instruction. So find a... So between you and your partner, just maybe would be good is, is just to figure out which of you will be speaking first. So there's 
there's the first person who's speaking and then the other one will be listening. And for the person who's speaking, the instruction is, is to talk about something that happened that really in, in your workplace that uh, really um, was really important for you. And so uh, that's the, t- the subject matter, is to talk about what was really important to you, okay? And then the meditation instruction is to speak from a place of really trying to say what was actually really happening rather than trying to convey a, a, a persona that you'd like to convey. So really speak from the experience itself rather than conveying an image of how you would like to be seen. Okay? And then the person listening, your instruction is to stay very attentive in your body, to feel your body, to know what's going on in your body, and to watch the person speaking, watch their facial expressions, watch what's going on in their body movement, and see how it affects you and then afterwards you're going to have a chance to respond both what you heard and how you felt as you were listening. Are those instructions clear? Any questions? Okay. So the first speaker, when you hear the bell, that's the indication to begin speaking. And if I, you hear the bell again, it's an indication to pause. And then I'll give more instructions. Both of you come back into your body and just just get a sense of, of what that felt like to speak and to listen. Come back and feeling the feet on the ground and your seat on the cushion if you're sitting. And now the person who was listening, you have a couple of minutes to reflect how it was to hear what you heard, what you heard. So it's both your repeating what you heard and also your, your, what you observed, the facial expressions, the body language, and your own personal feeling as you were listening.
just coming back again into the present moment and feeling what it feels like to have had this been reflected, what it has felt to speak again, and now for the first speaker to, to, to be heard and to be reflected back to what that feels to hear that. So taking stock again of what's going on and how one is responding to what's going on. And so now we repeat, but this time the second speaker gets us a chance to talk from his or her own experience about what was really important, significant, meaningful to you in your workplace. And as you're speaking, speak as authentically as you can from the experience itself. See what that feels like. And then the listener, your job is to listen with your body to feel things in your body as you listen to the words, feel where it responds or resonates in your body and watch facial expressions and body language and just notice how it all lands in you as you're listening. And your job is to pause every time you get caught up into something where you move outside of your body then to pause and come back to your body. And even if that means that you need to close your eyes for a moment, to come back to your body and do that. And then when you're ready, open your eyes again and, and then connect again with what the person is saying and listening and feel how it lands in your body. Okay? So now the second speaker begins to speak. Again, the instruction is just to come back into your body and just see what's there. You've just had a, a moment of either speaking or listening and just taking note of what's there. And now the person who was just listening has an opportunity to reflect back what they heard and what they felt, what they observed while they were listening. So, 
the instructions were to listen and to and to and to listen and feel what you felt and to observe what you saw. And what I'd like to do now is just have a dialogue back and forth between the two of you about the kinds of things that you were picking up on and the kinds of things that you weren't picking up on. So, you know, were you noticing the content of what was being said? Were you picking up on emotional tones? Were you picking up on facial expressions? Were you picking on your own internal feeling sense of what was going on as you were hearing it? What were you actually registering? Because in any situation, there can be many different things that you're picking up. And there, there isn't a right one or a wrong one. It's not to make a judgment about what you picked up. But just to begin to observe that when the instruction or the, uh, the question is to observe, what is it that you're observing? What are you actually picking up on? Yeah? And then how did it feel when it was reported back? So that's the dialogue. What were you picking up on? And how did, it, how did this actually feel for you to do that? Okay? Please go ahead. Dialogue. No one first, no one second. <laughs> Join the larger group and have a discussion together. Sure. So um, this is an opportunity just to report back to the larger group what that was about for you, how that worked, and um, your your own sense of of of, um, of what your experience was, and how is this different from what normally happens when you're speaking to people in the work, <laughs> and why, you know. Is there a way that we can bring this quality of um, honesty and authenticity into the workspace? Well, you put some structure around the process, which uh, I believed caused us to kind of slow down and take it easy and think it through. And so I think the quality of the exchange that we had, in my sense, was good. It was a high-quality exchange. So, Ray, are you saying then that um, one of the things that's not always present in the workplace is the slowing down, the taking it easy, and the, th and the thinking it through? Right. Okay. It happens on the fly, you know, so the quality isn't there. Or not the, this level of quality. Maybe you're operating at 40%. We're right here, we were operating at 85%. Right. So then the question is, is, is that how can we um, uh, create internal structures where those values are operating such that the conversations that were happening uh, with people in the workplace are getting closer to the higher end of meaningful quality conversations? What's needed in order for that to happen? I think just the fact that only one person was allowed to speak without any interruption, without any, without thinking about what you were going to say to respond, you had to actually think about what they were saying. That doesn't happen a lot in the workforce, and you get 
you can put a structure in place where a meeting or something that only one person is allowed to speak, no interruptions for the time limit, whatever it is, it may be very beneficial. I think that we really need to get a lot better at uh, not allowing uh, distractions, uh, cell phones, and interruptions, people that are not fully present. So my experience as a meditator over years is, is, is that, you know, when one's getting settled in the meditation practice, it's really helpful to have periods where it's focused and concentrated and there's not a lot of distractions. And then the practice opens up and includes all of the chaos. And so then the chaos isn't a distraction because the mind is trained to stay with what it needs to stay with, and the distraction is not a distraction any longer. So things are contextual. And in the context where one's beginning to get a feeling for how this all works, then it's really helpful to have structure and support and non-interruption and all of that. And then as one gets more grounded in it, then one can be in more of a, a, a distracted space or, and, it, and it, it's, not as, it's not as disturbing. So what's really helpful is to recognize where you're at what's helpful, and to see if it's possible to bring some of the things that are helpful into your work environment, whatever it is. Yeah. So if structured meetings are helpful so that you can have more sense of what you're feeling and then respond from a deeper place, you know, is it, is it an option to suggest that, you know? Or is it an option to have, you know, um, negotiate spaces where the cell phones are not ringing all the time or something. I don't know what it would look like, but something that actually supports, you know, we were talking about creating a, a meditation space here at Innovation Pavilion that was just dedicated for silence and meditation and that kind of inquiry so that you had that, you could go to that. There was a place that you could actually physically go to, you know, or you could think about it, you know, you can remember that it's there if you can't actually get there, you know. So in a, in a culture that I come from, having a place like a meditation room or a shrine or something like that serves that purpose of reminding you that this is about not getting involved in the normal distracting kinds of stuff. It's just for being attentive to what is, and it's not about creating agendas or, or figuring out strategies. It's about just being with what is. Because the light, I mean, I don't know about your life. <laughs> it seems like life is pretty compelling and it's, everything's got urgent on it, you know. You know, it's, everything is urgent. It has to be done immediately. And so this stuff, which is the, the stuff that makes the quality of life so rich, is not urgent. But it's essential. It's absolutely essential, but it's not urgent. So the urgent stuff takes the time and the energy, and unless we carve out the space for it, it's not going to happen. So what was it, anybody else like to share about what the dialogue was like, how that worked for you? Yes, please. So what struck me as interesting and different from the workplace was my conversation was very, um, both of us listened in a very feeling way, that uh, we were very conscious of each other's feelings and emotions in the conversation, and when we reflected back to one another, what we reflected back was much more of the emotion, both from the listener and from the, the, the uh, speaker. And in the business workplace, I, I can't think of even a single case where that's really happened. 
typically the conversations are much more on the words and the content and not so much. And, and perhaps it's because I you, know, you put up the walls or I don't know, but you don't aren't quite as open perhaps to that emotion or feeling that's behind what somebody is saying. So I was talking with my brother when we were at the meal today and we were talking about how, you know, our society is sort of um, built on a, a kind of a, a, a complete belief in what is rational. And in that complete belief in what is rational, we've separated ourselves not only from everything that's not rational, but we've separated ourselves from ourselves. And that has been kind of believed in as the religion of our time, all right? And then the work environment is something that kind of uh, reifies that or deifies that. And so then there's a sense of shame if you, if you cross that boundary and actually are a person that feels, you know? I mean, God forbid you should cry in your workplace. I mean, honestly. <laughs> and yet sometimes you come to work and it's like, you know, there's enough stuff going on that it's worth crying about, you know? You know, or something tragic just happened at home and you come to work and it's still with you, you know? But it's like, it's t not, and that's considered professional, yeah? But I was saying to my brother, I was saying, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, one of the things that's known about him is, is, is that his emotional expressions and his emotional versatility is on the high end of the spectrum. So when you get a person like him who's really um, well-practiced, who knows what he's feeling, his ability to express it is um, exemplary. It's not hindered, it's actually exemplary. And, you know, there are plenty of situations where he's giving a teaching and there's 50,000 people or 100,000 people coming and he cries, all right? Because he's moved. So he doesn't shut it down because he's filling a persona of what he's supposed to be. He's present with what is, and if tears come, he cries. Now, we have some work to do to feel the confidence to know that that's going to be okay and that we're not going to be shamed or ostracized or humiliated or get a pay cut or, you know, whatever, get kicked off of the project, okay? So we have some learning because the images and the messages that we've gotten is, is that it's actually not acceptable, that those, those risks are real, yeah. So part of what I hear you both saying is that there was safety in this space that you're not experiencing in your workspace. Yeah. And so then the question is, is, is that is there a way of finding the safety in ourselves that we can bring to the workspace? And what does that look like? Yeah. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're wide open and that we're inappropriate. Okay? That's not that. But it means that we've got the confidence in ourselves to track what we're feeling in ourselves such that then we are able to be fluid with the expression of it as it is appropriate. That is the skill of meditation, is, is that you find the safety in yourself and then respond according to what's appropriate for the environment you're in. And in different environments, it's going to look differently. There are plenty of times when I feel like crying and I don't, you know? And it's not just, you know, a stuffing it away. It's a mind measuring, you know, the effect on the situation and the impact it's going to have on me. Would anybody else like to share?
So when we go back to these five different topics, self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills, one of the things about self-awareness obviously is internal reflection. But one of the ways that that can be highly supported is by uh, keeping a journal and just writing down your thoughts and your feelings over the course of a day. So it's like private space where it's uncensored. You don't need to perform. It doesn't need to look good. It doesn't need to be poetry. You just write down exactly what you're thinking and feeling. And the more you get into the habit of doing that, the more you get familiar with what's actually going on in your internal landscape. It's a really skillful thing to develop. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't need to take a lot of time, you know. So that's a, a skillful way of doing that. Now, what Ray mentioned is, is that one of the assets of doing this is slowing down. And so what we need to do is to find ways in our day where we can slow down, where we can actually just tune in and slow down. Because as we tune in and slow down, there's a whole, it's like, you know, putting on scuba gear and going underwater, there's a whole new universe that we experience that we just didn't have any access to before, you know? Because it's just moving, to re we're externalized because of the speed. Now, what I've been hoping to do with you in this context is just showing that it doesn't require necessarily a lot of time, and it can be in postures that we assume regularly, but it's the motivation of just tuning in to doing that. What does it feel like inside? You know, to just take a few moments to let your attention drop into your body as you're walking from here to the toilet or you're going to the printer or you're going to the car, you know. So you determine those as retreat times, you know. And so, you know, that's the time to t tune in and then see what comes up and comes alive for that. So my sense with this kind of group of people is, is that the success is not going to come from carving out large spaces of time that's separate from your work, but bringing these qualities of meditation into your daily life. That's my sense of where the fruit of this is really going to flower. I'm never going to laugh at John Boehner for crying again. <laughs> <laughs> Totally cool with him crying. <laughs> I don't know who he is. Oh, he's the speaker of the house. Everyone laughed at him because he's an emotional guy, and he kind of comes out, and so, and it's unusual, you know. So, uh, but, but now I kind of go. Of course, he should cry if he wants to cry. It's just it's totally cool. <laughs> Problems with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's. You know, who gets to cry, you know? Yeah. If you're under six, you're allowed to cry, and then it's, like, not acceptable any longer, you know? When we're looking at the whole self-regulation um, process, then there's, there's other things about that that's also helpful, and one of them is uh, really being clear about what your values are and then holding yourself accountable to them. And then learning how to calm down. So, you know, some of the things that where we lose it is when our system gets amped up and agitated and we don't know how to calm down. It's almost as if the system is, is discharging before we have any uh, willfulness behind it. So learning those mechanisms and learning those points after which we don't have any regulation and learning how to interrupt that or intervene that is really very skillful. Yeah. 
Well, maybe that's enough. We can have a closing talk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.